Hello and welcome to Politics in the Pulpit. This is a lecturing based preaching resource designed to ask that provocative question of whether and if so how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Beth Alison Glenny, I'm a Baptist minister and I'm working as the Baptist Union of Great Britain's Public Issues Enabler, a part of the Joint Public Issues team. Each week I'm really delighted to be joined by a different guest from a place or space on the political or preaching landscape and today I'm going to introduce you the Reverend David Main. He's the Minister of Shoebury-Ness and Thorpe Bay Baptist Church, outgoing moderator of Baptist Union Council uh, and the Chair of Trustees for an FGM charity and you've been involved with JPIT for about six years David haven't you? Um, yep. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you it's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, politics in the pulpit it's, it's a provocative question and I wonder a little bit about what that might mean for you and your context and how you, how do you feel about that phrase? Well, I, I don't think it should be a question mark at all. I don't think one should be able to separate the two in any meaningful way. Um, I think that's to misunderstand the nature of both politics and preaching to, to do that. Um, I'm a political uh, geek. Uh, I love uh politics um i would quite happily watch bbc parliament as my tv channel of choice um both uk and us politics i've got quite a keen interest i'm not a member of any particular party i don't agree with any of them enough to join them um so i voted for almost everybody um but having said that i i wouldn't i not very often got party political in the pulpit um there are certain issues where we might talk about more depending on what's coming out of the text. I did once pray, I don't know if you remember, um, just before one of the elections, not too long ago, two members of parliament defected to UKIP um, and they were in Clacton and in Rochester. And I did sneak into our prayers of intercession, uh, prayers for the people of Clacton and Rochester that they might throw off their yoke of oppression and something like that. Anyway, and, and two or three people got it and looked at me and everyone else was like, why is he praying for Clacton? We don't understand. Um, but generally, we, I haven't, I'm not party political, but I would be very political in that way. So um, I wonder from your context, if there's like a particular issue or just social justice question that you kind of really would want our uh, politician, pulpit politicians to hear this week. From our context, we're in a really interesting place here. So the church sits sort of at the confluence of a number of communities that almost live quite distinct lives. Um, so you could go five minutes in this direction and have very large houses on the end of the Thames estuary. And you could go five minutes this way and be in some social housing, which ticks all the wrong boxes at the council in terms of their statistics. And and in a number of other ways, too, the church sits sort of where all these things meet. And it creates a really interesting space for us. In a way, the church is a bit of a meeting place for different groups, particularly socioeconomic groups and um, housing would be a big issue um economic deprivation would be a big issue mental health resourcing and support um education there's all sorts of things that that land very acutely here um and then for myself i've always had quite a strong um emphasis on uh, issues relating to uh, justice with gender and women's rights um and that's something that 
inevitably comes out when I'm exploring uh, passages. Um, I don't quite know where that started, but it's been a thing for me as long as I can remember. My master's dissertation was focused on on that and how patriarchy shapes the way the Baptist Union functions. Um, so all these kind of things are quite relevant. And then the church here over the last couple of years has really been exploring more and more about what it means to be a safe place, to be a sanctuary. We've spent uh, a lot of time talking about issues of human sexuality and the church has uh, worked through a lot of that in a really positive way and been talking a lot about racial justice over the last 18 months as well. We're just moving on to talk about disability, thinking about how ch our church life together is experienced by those who are single in the community. And actually, you know, a lot of churches big up all the stuff about families, but that's not you, that's a bit of a challenge. So it's a very live conversation for us. And I realize in the way that one can't necessarily separate who you are from what you do, um, through some very uh, good therapy, I realized that I've spent my whole life talking about and trying to find safe spaces. And so I think it's inevitable that in my ministry that sort of finds its way out into a variety of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Here on the safe space thing there. Um, so um, normally um, at this point, we move on to saying this is a roundup of news from a kind of JPIT kind of political geekery perspective. And um, and I'm I, we're actually going to start with a bit of podcast news first, aren't we today? Um, uh, perhaps it's a point to say that uh, you as our choice of guest today is very intentional because um, not only are you a brilliant pulpit politician uh, normally, but you are in fact going to be taking over as host for Politics in the Pulpit in this next yep. season. Um, so I'm about to move to a new role. I'm going to become a uh, chaplain, head of welfare and theological fellow, I think it is, at Regent's Park College in Oxford, which is a bit of a mouthful <laughs> and so to get out in a, in a podcastable form. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, so I'm going to be I'm going to be moving on, handing over the baton to you, David. And um, uh, we've already I know we've already got some really exciting guests lined up for the autumn season. And uh, we've got a new, um, we've created a, a new Twitter handle just so that you can follow us on, on Twitter as well um, and keep up to date with all the news because um, we're going to have a bit of a summer recess. So there's going to be a few weeks uh, just to kind of, as Parliament's closed down, just to kind of regroup and regather and relaunch. Um, but we're um, we're really excited that we've got a COP special that's going to be happening mm -hmm. in that summer break. So we're not just disappearing for the whole of August. Uh, we've got a COP special that will be coming out about the 24th of August. Um, and we're really delighted that um, Molly Pugmire, who's the COP26 campaigns worker for the Methodist Church, um, is going to be hosting the Reverend David Gregory, um, who's head of the Baptist Union Environmental Network and uh, big part of JRI and um, really got lots of feathers to his bow there, former president of Baptist Union Council and Baptist Union Great Britain. So we're, um, we're really excited to have um, them come and do their special all about environment and how to preach COP and what we might need to think about there. So even if um, perhaps um, I think this one to really share out to other people, if even if normally you think, well, politics is something people will be a bit nervous and edgy about. Actually, this is going to be such a big moment in our kind of collective thinking as society that actually this is one to really tune into and, and to think about how do, how do we go about this? What, what, what might that look like? So um, so there. So I would just recommend following, um, following us along so that you can keep up to date with all that news. Um, and then you'll be back on air around the 7th of September, David. And you'll be talking yeah. about 
Yeah, looking forward to it. Obviously difficult to follow in such esteemed footsteps from the first series. And I know uh, lots of us sort of out in the field have really appreciated. And I don't, we don't particularly follow the lectionary most weeks here, but I've still found it uh, really uh, stimulating and thoughtful. And it's almost kind of been my early end of the week devotional space actually i found it really helpful uh, and i know that lots of others have too so thank you for getting it off the ground and we'll do our best to look after it um in <laughs> season two it does feel a bit like handing over your baby yeah. <laughs> well thank you and then there's um there's really important thanks that also need to be shared at this point um to matt who's been our technician behind the scenes you can't see matt um when it gets vlogged like this but um matt is quietly beavering away behind the scenes to make everything fabulous um with all the technological side but also to lucy who's been our producer um and lucy is um one of our JPA interns um so i would just plug that if you've been thinking about whether you'd like to be a JPA intern this may be one of the jobs that you get to do um but she's been fab at doing this and um she is part a core part of this and without her lots of things wouldn't happen that make this work so we're really grateful to Lucy. Lucy will also be moving on to a new role because her internship will be will be coming up to an end so um, we just want to really shout out thanks to Lucy at this point too. So we should probably go to the actual news because Lucy has sent that right. to me. Um, so each week I, uh, I do ask my JPIT colleagues for a roundup of their um, political geekery as David would call it. Um, I call it Political expertise and uh, expertise. I like that. Expertise. What what might we want to keep an eye on in the world this week? And so some of their suggestions are this. So Parliament's in recess, uh, but the news is still very political. Um, Self isolation leading to shortages of critical workers, and the government very much scrambling to put together a workable response for that. Um, lots of ethical questions being raised around the use of COVID vaccine passports. Um, and Dominic Cummings continued revelations, shall we say, about the Prime Minister's approach to the pandemic. Um, there's a big focus on migrants crossing the channel. At the moment, we might want to think about that coming towards our gospel reading. Um, though the numbers are very, very small when seen in um, context and many are pushed into it out of desperation. Um, the Nationality and Borders Bill is currently going through Parliament. Um, currently go that was currently going through Parliament um, would make this kind of entry into the UK illegal uh, and that means that those coming by that route would never get permission to have permanent sanctuary in the UK whatever the needs or the merits of their cause would be so um, so that's really something to bear in mind um, as it gets scrutinised and, and any pressure you can put on that scrutiny would be really important. Um, in the world at large, floods, floods absolutely everywhere it feels like uh, Europe, China and even last night in London um, it's not um, it's not the first big global warming induced round of weather that we've experienced, um, but uh, it's perhaps the first that's so close to home for us. Um, and it's we're we're kind of as we're coming to COP and thinking about how do we respond to this climate emergency, it's something to keep in mind. In the same vein, Madagascar is experiencing a huge famine. Um, uh, and that's been described recently as the first famine induced solely by climate change. And then um, at home as well, uh, we uh, there's a study that's come out of the University of Sheffield and you can find the details um, on Sky News um, that showed that food poverty has gone up during the pandemic. Um, it's not unexpected, but it um, comes with some really high numbers. Um, one in every six local authorities has had a rate of hunger 150 times the national average. Mm. Um, and the worst area, which is actually Wickham in 
in Buckinghamshire, 30% of people struggle to access food. Um, and um, in January of 2021, 4.2% uh, of adults in the UK said they've been hungry and unable to eat at least once. Um, and unsurprisingly, there's a huge regional disparity in that the North has been particularly badly hit. So that's, um, that's a, a pretty massive uh, news story to just to be aware of, because I think um, with the readings today, I, I'd kind of want to say that that's perhaps there, those are figures or those, that's a news story to really have in mind as we come to our text. Um, so should we come to the readings. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got today uh, 2 Samuel 11 into 12, uh, which is Nathan's kind of parable to David, responding to David and Bathsheba. Uh, I think I'm going to call it raping Bathsheba. I'm going to be that strong, David raping Bathsheba, and Nathan's kind of response to that. Um, we've got Ephesians 4, which is all about um, kind of the, you know, that language around unity in Christ. Uh, there is one hope, one faith, one baptism, and, but then there are lots of different leadership gifts given to the church and, and all of what that might mean. Um, and then we've got John 6. Um, which is the bread of life. So David, three big passages, um, mm -hmm. and they're all quite big passages. I, I wonder if there's one that particularly strikes you or a theme that crosses all of them, where, where would you begin? How, where would you go first? Well, instinctively, there's a gospel reading from John. So I would always instinctively start there because it's John and it's the gospel reading. Um, but I, I perhaps see more connections between the other two readings than John. Mm. So, I mean, do you want to talk about John for a bit? And then we might have a bigger piece of work looking at the others. Is that all yeah. right? Because I want to not talk about John. Um, <laughs> and this is this point in the in the lectionary um, where, but John just goes on. <laughs> this yeah. John 6 goes on and on and on. It's like the lectionary is like, please read the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by the time you've done the, like a, a bread of life feeding miracle once, you, and then it just seems to be that we just get the bread of life for a few weeks at this mm -hmm. stage. Um, so we've got this, yeah, we've got this passage about, um, you know, Jesus crossing over to Capernaum Ke and Capernaum, depending on how you want to anglicize that. And then, um, and kind of why did you go here and Jesus saying uh you didn't come because you saw the signs you you came because you had had your fill of food before um so what would you what would you pick about that passage I think one of the challenges with this passage is that most of us come to preach it and read it um not hungry for tomorrow yeah. and I think this happens a lot obviously bread is a metaphor that we find in all sorts of other places um but I remember hearing a sermon 15 years ago on the Lord's prayer and the person saying this is totally fine to see this as spiritual right give us a day our daily bread but actually people don't think about it like that when they haven't got enough food for today never mind tomorrow and so I think that's one of my struggles reading this passage um not least because that isn't really what Jesus is talking about <laughs> so he's given them they've had physical bread but that isn't the focus of this but i think if i'm sitting there and i don't have enough food in my cupboard and i lived a number of years of my life where that was the case you hear this passage very differently and you think well what good is that when i can't feed my children what good is that when um i don't know what tomorrow looks like so i think that's one of the challenges um coming to passages where food is used as a metaphor or as a sign or a symbol. I mean, I think there's more than that going on here. Jesus is, seems much stronger than that. Um, but all this is you know, designed to send them towards the true food, of course. They want another sign as if to say what's happened isn't enough. 
don't know whether they're expecting Jesus to get more explicitly political, whether they're wanting some sort of military campaigning, where they're saying, right, well, that was nice. Now what's next? Um, and obviously, I know last week's podcast with Ali, you explored some of that and, and Jesus mm. resisting that. Um, one of the things that I did note here was how Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Um, we're very down on politicians who don't really answer the question, but actually Jesus very seldom answers a straight question either for very <laughs> different motivations, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, Jesus sort of rejects the premise of the question. He's taught, taught everybody well and actually saying what you're really asking is this. So let me tell you what the real answer is. Um, and Jesus was able to recognize that and, and speak to the need of the moment however it was presenting itself um i mean there's loads more in here but it i think this food metaphor is is very easy for lots of us in church to read and very difficult for actually church in other parts of the world to read um, where they pray give us today our daily bread literally yeah we don't i am so i preached on this on Sunday and I, well, I preached on the previous bit of this because okay. it's got two yeah. halves in it, yeah. or like several halves <laughs> no so you can't have several halves you know, <laughs> of this bit of John 6 that gets broken up and I'm so I preached on um I preached on this entirely based on this idea that we don't come to if are you coming how you hear this is entirely shaped on whether you're hungry and it is mm. about food and um and then I think um I think that kind of the whole breadline concept is a really helpful image if you're kind of preaching on it. Um, was, you know, that's how we define poverty in this country is, is this is the staple mm. food. Um, and the Church Urban Fund have a really useful website. I, um, I, so I used on when I was preaching last week to look up the area I was preaching in because it wasn't my local area and um, and to say, well, what is your breadline? What are your breadline figures in church? Okay. Everyone will let you look that up and it will tell you in your local area how many people are in poverty. Now, obviously, this, these are pre-pandemic statistics, but if that was true pre-pandemic, we can assume that's been exacerbated in the pandemic. Um, and I think, so I found, you know, kind of people are looking for kind of an entry point into what hunger is in their own community. That helps. Um, and it's so interesting when the richest, you know, the wealthiest parishes, because it's done this Church of England tour, uh, sit next to the poorest. And I think there is something really telling about that as well. Um, but yeah, I think the idea that Jesus feeds people, but then doesn't leave them only with food, that the food is you know the kind of the food is a solution but it's not really the solution because there should be enough food mm. <laughs> actually yeah. that there isn't enough food because there was enough food there was a big old feeding miracle I and mean, suddenly this five you know these these loaves and fishes suddenly multiply everywhere and but actually this idea that actually from that actually what happens next is it's about people's the whole way of being in the world isn't it and that's mm. where jesus comes to the idea of well maybe we need to to look at how, how you relate to God and how you relate to, you know, and I'll, you know, if Jesus is the bread of life, what does it mean to never be hungry? If you've always been hungry. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's, there's so, so much more in there and, you know, the links with Moses and the, you know, this idea of the manna comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. Well, here is Jesus coming down from heaven, giving life to the world. You know, it's a, it's rich, um, mm -hmm. but it is also, um, read very much by your own context and um, yeah what's in your cupboards 
And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus is the manna and then Jesus is the water. So, you know, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And actually, these are the two things that happen in the desert, in the wilderness space. Um, And I think perhaps people probably feeling quite wildernessy at the moment, that there's a kind of returning to crowds and what does that feel like? And um, maybe a bit kind of displaced, you know, come out of, of one thing that was maybe a bit imprisoning um and that will maybe lead us on to the, some of the next passages yeah. in a bit but you know coming out of a space that was imprisoning into this kind of slightly wilderness where are we going from here actually what does yeah. the future even look like you know actually here is jesus as 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 the bread of life as as the water from the rock what does this mean god making a way through the wilderness um it might be a long old schlep and we don't know do we? and you get a bit of that from a sense of the crowd i think in in this john passage and that they could have just gone well he's clearly very good at these miracles he's given us some bread we'll go home but they they're they're searching for there is a hunger there of a of a kind isn't there and they are um searching and seeking and trying to work out and they see something in jesus they want to uh, explore at the very least um so there there is all of that in there with with the crowd and their response as well i think mm. yeah so where would you go if we, teach, teach, if we go to the other two? Where would you go? Well, I'd I'd go Ephesians next, if yep. only because the two Samuel one makes me the most cross of the three. So um, <laughs> the Ephesians passage is one I'd been quite aware of because um, I've seen a number of people use the beginning of Ephesians four in some of their communications to people about church reopening things changing i think it's been used in a number of places because you know it's a fairly classic be humble and gentle be patient bear with one another i mean you can take that from all sorts of places in the new testament letters i realize and and so i think for me already in my head there's a link there to sort of freedom day as was build um life together things up in the air this wilderness you've been talking about things are in flux as well and so how do we live with the fact that actually life is feels quite flexible and things are less permanent and dependable and static than it mm. than they were before and even if we think in the pandemic a lot of people have had enforced routines or enforced things well now that's kind of ending and now we're all having to discern and use our initiative and think and whatever take personal responsibility whatever the language is and that's quite a tiring when you've spent a long time not doing that. Um, but I think I would say two things about that. The first is that actually, again, to see it purely like that is an indication of one's privilege. A lot of people live life always in flux. Mm. This is not new for a lot of people who don't live in the same house for decades, who don't have regular routines for whom it's from short-term job to short-term job to this flat to that apartment whatever it is and so I think that instability actually is just how a lot of people live Mm. and the idea that it's a struggle is is not the case for everybody um but more than that then taking the the tone of the Ephesians sort of the unity stuff that Paul's writing about I think the thing that struck me was how the way in which we engage with our politics, particularly, and Lord knows there's a lot to engage with at the moment. I've gutted we're in recess the week I'm on the podcast. Um, but um, you've got you've got a few more to go now. Well, exactly. I've been all right. I'll be back. I'll be back. But the, 
the tone of how we engage matters. Yeah. And one of the challenges I think to the church is how do we play our part in creating environments where change can occur? Now, obviously, there's got to be a space for protest. We'll come on to that in a bit as well. And when Paul writes about in verse 15 of the Ephesians passage, speaking truth in love, I mean, that's a phrase that wants me hiding under the bed, really, because it's just used as an excuse to be rude in church sometimes. Obviously, never with our folks here. Um, (laughs) But I think there's also something like in Romans 12, where it talks about letting our love be genuine. There's something here that Paul is, I think, calling us to, which is a kind of maturity of approach as well that I think is really important. I've just finished reading a book. Well, well, I haven't finished it, actually, but it's on my desk, uh, which is really a sociology book rather than a a theological book. But it's all about the importance of sort of the elders in the community and not in terms of age, but actually the need for wisdom and gravitas and maturity in the way in which we engage politically because if we want to change people's minds and we want to actually make things better i've never changed my mind because somebody shouted at me that i'm wrong and i think i'm not alone in that Mm. and this passage does encourage us i mean i know it's talking about sort of the way we do life together as church but i think it speaks more widely to the kind of people we're called to be as disciples of christ and then um, I was reading a, a prayer book that I got recently, and one of the prayers finished I used yesterday in church where it says about the prayer is to keep our anger from becoming meanness and keep our mm. sorrow from collapsing into self-pity, keep our hearts soft enough to keep breaking and keep our outrage turned towards justice and not cruelty. And I think that keeping our anger from becoming meanness is really, really important. Yes, be cross with what the Home Office are doing. I don't see how someone can not be cross with what the Home Office are doing. But actually, personally insulting the Home Secretary probably doesn't advance the argument very much, um, for example. Yeah. Um, and this is where, you know, obviously, social media and all these sorts of things are wonderful for finding out stuff. But there's a challenge there too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that comes up to me. That was one of the things that comes out of the Ephesians passage, which actually links with the Samuel passage. But I don't know if there's other things you want to pick up on Ephesians before. We... So, yeah, just only that um, I'm really struck by in the first um, the first line, um, it yeah. says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which, again, is it's a passage that slightly makes me wince because it's only ever been used against me. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's never yeah, ever used yeah. as a, like an encouragement, you know, it's like always as I kind of hit somebody over the head with, you're not in line. Um, but um, it's the um, the phrase worthy is really interesting because what do we think worth is? Well, the Greek the Greek word that is worthy is um, is axios, and it's an economics phrase. And I think that's really, ha- from politics perspective, really interesting. So yeah. it's, it's this idea of um, a, a term that means a balanced scale, a balanced weighing scale. Um, and so the idea of worthy, to, you know, it's a life um, equivalent, a life with an equilibrium, uh, a life with a kind of uh, an equal balance to the to the to the calling which you've been called which is actually if you hear it that way for me it was like ah, oh, well this kind of changes how i hear it because my own sense of unworthiness or worth and and i think probably true for other people's too um is like actually you know it's not about my self-esteem or my you know it, it's actually about what does it mean to live in balance with mm. and that is a completely different way of hearing everything that comes which is about unity and diversity sitting together and 
you know, the idea those things are balanced somehow, that growth, because there seems to be a dynamic nature to this text, you know, that there's a kind of, um, you know, the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament at the end, this kind of idea that that's a bo- like a body grows, but a body grows, should grow healthily in balance, that it's, you know, that actually cells replicate and cells grow. So, you know, there's something renewing and enabling and, and stuff, but it's not about, it's not a kind of growth for the sake of growth, because we would say that was cancer actually in the body, wouldn't we? So there's kind of something about this idea that it's growing for a purpose, growing in a healthy direction and, um, I think it's really interesting. It's kind of language of, of kind of balance. It's almost a kind of, and I'd want to use the body as quite an ecological image of what that means. Because yeah. I think um, in in our kind of way of seeing the world, we know that, you know, when when the world is healthy, it, it balances itself out. The ecosystem of the world is, is significant. And I think maybe there's something like the ecosystem of church. What does it mean mm-hmm. to be balanced? Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I think I think for me it was about that kind of economics idea at the beginning, and then that kind of ecological idea at the end, kind of really linking together for how I hear the whole way of looking at this passage now, which is um, really interesting. And also the idea that actually it's constantly Christ giving, Christ giving yes. is constantly repeated. The idea that this is anyway <laughs> like what we turn up with, you know, these are gifts. This gift unity is a gift. The diversity of of gifts that he that is given to the church as a gift the fact that um uh we were given grace is a gift you know uh, it's a measure of christ's gift the measure of christ's gift is nothing less than descending into hell and ascending into heaven that's the complete expanse of it there's like such a big huge gift of it and i think also um so what's it lead to live in balance with that huge generosity of god I think it's a completely different way of approaching this text, well, for me anyway, than kind of, yeah. the, um, you know, the speaking the truth in love. Types. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to Samuel. To Samuel. Well, shall I start with where I think, for me, it links with Ephesians, but yeah. that's kind of part way through, because the, the reading does start at verse 26 of chapter 11, and I think verse 26 and 27 are perhaps the most outrageous bit of the whole thing. So perhaps we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, but I think where, for me, I was starting to draw connections with this was with Nathan's role and how through the relationship that David and Nathan already had, he was able to come and speak this to David. If this was just someone who was permanently protesting outside David's house, I don't think it would have had the impact on David that it has in this passage. I think the impact comes from the maturity and wisdom and gravitas and friendship and genuine. I'm I'm saying this because I'm speaking the truth in love uh, to you. Mm. I, I don't think you get that if Nathan's just permanently outraged. Yeah. And so I think for me, here's someone who, because of the balance, is able then to speak this deeply uncomfortable but important set of truths to David. Obviously, he adopts the the Jesus approach of uh, using a parable to tell truth to power as a way in, um, which is always a a good idea. And you just get this sense of the shock that David experiences in verse 7. I mean, it does kind of feel to me like he walks into the elephant trap of this parable and you think oh crumbs how did he not see 
uh, that coming. But there you go. Perhaps he didn't expect it from Nathan. Perhaps that's one of the issues. Mm -hmm. He's got a friend. He's less guarded. Uh, you know, perhaps he feels like they're just, you know, he's a friend asking him a hypothetical question or whatever, thinking it's about somebody else. And then from verse seven, of course, it's much more bold. It's much more direct. Um, and then, so that's where I think I would link it with Ephesians. Um, and the whole other stuff, really, both from there on, uh, verse 11 and the beginning of the reading, the end of chapter 11 as well. Uh, just the um, the horrific patriarchal oppression and injustice that we see. So if I go back to the beginning, perhaps. So you have verses 26 and 27 where it says when Uriah's wife heard. So we don't even get told her name. Right? That's the first thing. So I'm already on edge because we're not even told her name. And in fact, in the genealogy in Matthew 1, she's still Uriah's wife. Yeah, I know. I even that. though we have these other women named who have interesting histories, they are named, but, but do you she is. If you not think that the gospel's making this point, you know. Yeah, yeah, quite, yeah, I've, quite possibly. Like, we're not. I'm not. He's not. She's not allowed to become David's wife. No, exactly. She's Uriah's wife. And yeah. As, but um, because we, we've been introduced to Bathsheba, haven't we? So we've, we've had her name. Yeah. And it's denamed as the passage. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. her, and as she, so she, she was, she was Bathsheba who was mm -hmm. known by both her relationship to her father and her husband, now it's a patriarchal culture, but potentially mm -hmm. as a compliment, you know, actually she's, you know, she's not just been passed over, but that people are invested in her and mm -hmm. maybe, um, and that she gets gradually denamed and she just becomes the wife of Uriah by the end of it. Yeah. You know, it's just this kind of, like she loses her own identity in this being taken and, 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 Raped. Yeah. And these two verses, 26 and 27, I mean, they're the ones that explain what's happened. And they're very terse. There's no, it's very perfunctory, you, you, you know, yeah. and this is where she, she loses any sort of identity. And there's no agency here for her at all. There's no sense no. in which she's obviously involved in any of the decisions and, and all those sorts of things, which linked in my mind to verse 11 of the chapter 12 and this is where you know forgive me if this verges into her heresy but um i just find verse 11 pretty outrageous and i'm all for i, I can understand god wanting to punish so I think we should read 11 now, just in case um, people don't have the text in front of them. It okay. Says, Thus says the Lord. Yeah. I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. Yeah. So in terms of bearing in mind the issues with patriarchal oppression that we've already identified, um, for this to be... And I, you know, David didn't do everything right. And I I kind of struggle with the idolization of David in church sometimes. Um, but I, I struggle even more with verse 11 because it's suggesting that God thinks this is an appropriate punishment when it involves um, a whole load of other people. Now, I get there's a, a logical consequence to what David has done. What David has done will impact his family, his reign, his con the consequences of his actions go 
far beyond himself. And I think, I mean, that is something that you can get a whole series of sermons out of. That's not an issue. But actually, the women in this passage haven't done anything wrong. And yet, um, for this to be deemed an appropriate punishment is just one of those verses where I'd have to say to everybody, yeah, I really don't get this. And I hope you don't get it too. And when the day comes, this can be on our list of big questions we've got about bits we don't get. But I, I would struggle with anyone who's able to read that and doesn't see it as a problem. I think I would go with what happens when the Nathans of the world says, this is what the Lord says. Yeah. Because actually, we get given scripture not saying that, like, this is exactly what God said, but this is what Nathan said, thus says the Lord yeah. said. And, um, and so I think I would try and ask that question. Um, because actually, I think within church culture, that's something we're trying to unpack a lot at the moment where yeah. how do we respond to the fact that actually we've been very complicit and very um and, and created environments that are not safe to mm. use an earlier phrase um and and have have allowed and have enabled and and then have hidden up you know covered up hidden the scandals of abuse that and we're known for that now that is a big missiological impact it has huge consequence that is what we our house you know is known for effectively in the church's life um and and so actually there's something to be said of well, what happens when the nathans of the world say this when the davids of the world have done that actually how do we respond to that when it's yeah. in our scripture and is scripture's job to say yeah this is endorsed or is scripture's job to open up the question within is and to make us feel so deeply uncomfortable about that they're actually when we see it in scripture we're going hey no wait no yeah. <laughs> no no and that makes us actually go well actually what do we need to be and do differently and maybe that because i think if, if scripture is living and i want to say that scripture is you know inspired by god but i don't think god, scripture is inspired by god just to sit as this kind of like dominating force on us that doesn't seem to me how god works um from scripture <laughs> but, but it seems to be that the, maybe the that the scripture is doing something by kind of asking the question back at us is this what you think is this what you think and yeah. is that how god works maybe not and maybe we have to say this is what it says god says and then no i think that's as you say i think that's a very live thing i mean there's nothing that closes down a discussion in church as much as god has said and uh you know and i think we've managed to gradually remove that quite declarative sort of way of speaking here we tend to use a lot more caveats and nuance but um i think the challenge of that is that it's nathan saying it particularly because actually nathan's someone who up until that point were all like yeah go nathan and and then he said something so i mean again that could just speak to the need for nobody's right all the time it's important that we're nuanced yeah. and all that kind of stuff but i think one of the challenges of it is for me that is then involves a flip of saying actually up until that point i'm on team nathan and david's the one i've got an issue with and actually here you think oh actually oh now i'm not really sure i'm up for what nathan's just said either the whole thing's a mess which yeah. it totally is yeah um and you know there's lots of analogies one can draw with the world um <laughs> in that way but i yeah i mean i know this narrative goes on for for some time will be next week's reading and was last week's reading and and all the rest of it but it it's a real challenge, I think. I think, I think, I mean, absolutely is. I think there are two book, two resources I'd point us to. Uh, one is Helen Painter's um, yes. book on the Bible and violence. It's really helpful for stuff like this um, yeah. and just suggest 
have it on your bookshelf so when you come to a prickly text and it says god seems to say go and murder a load of people you can go (laughs) go and find out like how to do that she's got some really good methodology of just how to approach Mm. it and and it's really written at a level where you can you can kind of engage with it like without having got a theology degree or anything like that so you don't feel like you need to you know i haven't got a i haven't got my kind of old testament hermeneutics thing going on that you don't need to it's great it's just really helpful and in fact would be helpful if you've got somebody in asking those questions afterwards mm-hmm. even if not for you know you you're preparing it um and the other thing is to say um there's a really good book called an article by lloyd stephan um on David's self-deception and what's going on in this narrative of Nathan and David. And um, it's called, You Are the Man. Um, And it's this idea that um, it was a, I'm gonna call it a, I can't, I read words. You know when you like, you learn words from reading, not from saying them, and I don't know how to say this word. So it's either juridical or juridical, as in like a jury, Um, uh, parable. So it's a juridical parable. We're going to go with that one. Um, and the idea is that um, it kind of you know, causes people to pass judgment on oneself and that this would have been a device used as a way of kind of creating judgment. Um, and so the kind of Nathan saying you are the man thing to it was about saying you, you've, self, you've deceived yourself. Who do you think you are? This is this is what you are. And um, therefore, this could happen to you. And I think the kind of um, um, and then so then David sort of like kind of really kind of being like uh, uh, I've sinned against the Lord that kind of real panic that then in, like in, received is then then Nathan going well no it's mm-hmm. you know it's not as you know the Lord has now put away your sin but kind of um I wonder if that's the kind of the idea of of thinking uh yeah whether that's a helpful way to go with some of it which is not to you know actually this could happen to you you know what would it be yeah. like for you to have this happen um and and kind of yeah that kind of self-deception thing and that's why i think it goes back to what you were saying about it not just being anybody but being nathan because actually you know there's clearly a relationship here you can't call out self-deception from somebody you've got to know someone to be able to say you're deceiving yourself but also like you've got to be trusted like that that conversation doesn't come out of an untrusting relationship you know that comes out of a place of i really respect this person i really want to hear what they have to say about my life and and i think one of the questions I would be asking in preaching this would be, how do we talk about self-deception? How how do we make this sermon that that kind of way of thinking about how have we deceived ourselves and how do in all sorts of ways and um, yeah. And how do we find how do we find balance mm. to take it back to Ephesians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's interesting, isn't it? Because Paul's in prison, so <laughs> so there's something also about imprisonment and you know, passing judgment and, you know, um, David going, uh, you know, he says, uh, the man who says this deserves to die. And it's a very colloquial phrase, like, and we sort of hear it like, oh, they deserve to be shot. And I can't help but think of that NHS, um, you know, the protest against the NHS workers and that horrible language that came out of that, and they deserve to be hung and all horribleness that came out of that protest. And I think I kind of, you know, it's that kind of, but that's kind of what David's doing is that kind of language mm. you have to be shot, you know, like that kind of knee jerky reaction. And I think, well, what scripture saying to us in these collection of readings around imprisonment and judgment and yeah, speaking truth and love. And is there some other way? My, I think, I think I normally a very strict 
preach on one passage, preach it out because Baptist trained. <laughs> and um, but I think I think this week would be one I'd be really tempted to go with a slightly broader theme about kind of how what is justice? How do how do we come to some level of of finding reconciliation and truth and mm. you know is that are there better ways of going about this i don't know yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of resources there i just want to shout out to uh, Brueggemann's commentary in the interpretation series on first second samuel which i found particularly helpful and marianne may thompson's commentary on john she's mm. a professor at fuller and uh, finding a really good commentary on john that's published in a standard series that's not written by a man is not always easy and uh, marianne's is brilliant and well worth uh, it's not cheap but it's worth having yeah yeah i keep recommending this um little one that i've i sort of accidentally had and i can't find obviously it's just right next to me but i can't see it in my pile um which is this um reading the gospel of john through palestinian eyes book um it's just that it, I recommend, if I've recommended it once, I've recommended it a hundred times now as we've been working our way through various chunks of John, but it's um, by Catanaccio and it's just a really lovely little, um, it's just, it's little, it's easy mm. and accessible, but it's um, it's just really, I love the way it, it just picks up, sometimes on the obvious, but from a different, you know, from an obvious if you're Palestinian, you know, kind of perspective and that's also very helpful, I think. And again, it makes the point about hunger you know, these, are, these are passages that people would have read well David thank you so much for today um I think um we have wet people's appetites and I use the um use the hungry narrative on purpose uh to uh to see a little bit about how you're gonna what you're gonna bring and how you're gonna host and I think you've already got some good people lined up so I really would encourage people to um to tune back in in September because there's some, some pretty big names coming up actually um it's quite exciting um so thank you so much for coming and being our guest today but also for you know taking on for this next new phase of life as we um as we move into a new new way of being um and maybe one day i could come back and be a guest um that would yeah be i would like that um so um let's go into our respective pulpits and our respective politics with a blessing may we be anointed with god's spirit as we bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully, and let the oppressed go free. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you. <laughs>